Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents Tales from the Dungeon. Epilogue, Part Two. The fifteenth day of Satar in the seventeen hundred and thirty first year after landing. His breath was hot and stale beneath the canvas pulled over his head. Pinpricks of light filtered through the cloth from time to time. The many sounds and smells of Jomato came and went as they traveled. Jamik was filled with joy. He had worked his whole life for this, his reputation on the streets, amongst the guild. It all came down to this, this one meeting. The occasional flit of light vanished, and it grew colder. The air around became damp and musty as he was shoved down some stairs, a door closing behind a few moments later. A cellar of some sort. At twenty-three, he was the youngest thief ever to be asked to meet the harbor master. There was no bigger honor in the guild. Only a handful knew his true identity. Those that discovered it, or were even found to be trying without his permission, had a tendency to disappear. Of course, that didn't stop the rumors. A dark mage that had come from south of the glass sea. A member of the duodecim themselves. Or the most popular and least believed. A young boy who had grown up in and amongst the docks, scraping and fighting for everything he had ever gotten. Jmeek had always hoped the last story was true mostly because elements of it mirrored his own rise. But in the end, it didn't matter who the harbor master was, only that he had achieved what he had achieved, and Jamik wanted to be part of that, to learn from him. Before the harbor master, the thieves of Jomato all worked for themselves, or in small groups, squabbling over territories and killing each other off. It was not uncommon for one thief to turn over another thief or group to the trying Aegis as a way of eliminating the competition. It was mayhem. Even the most successful thieves only stayed on top for a few years at most before the next biggest fish took them down. There had been Hundreds of would-be thief kings at any given time. Until he came to Jomato, the harbor master. He changed everything. Showed the thieves of the city their folly. Showed them how working in concert would allow them to rise so much higher. Achieve so much more without the worry of being taken out by some upstart at any given moment. And so he had organized the city, one district at a time, until he sat above all, deciding what was taken, where and when, distributing the wealth. 
forming the first unified thieves' guild the city had ever seen. Almost thirty years it had been now. Many turns, many more doors, and finally one last door. Points of light returned through the hood, but softer. Lantern light. The hood was drawn off. Jameek's eyes were closed as this happened, so the light didn't come as a shock. He opened one eye, and then the other. They were in a chamber ten paces aside, the walls made of a dark wood paneling. In the room were six other people besides himself and the two who had brought him. Three played dice at a table. An older woman played with a child, six or seven, in the corner of the room. And the last person, before who he had been brought, sat in a chair against the far wall. The chair was ornately carved and upholstered with a rich red fabric. It wasn't a throne per se, but the implication was clear. The man who sat in it looked to be in his early fifties, tall, muscular, and dark-skinned. His hair was cut short, and his simple shirt made of an expensive silk was open to the navel. He wore expensive rings on all of his fingers, and a heavy medallion with cinder's mark around his neck. As Jameek was brought in, the man sat slightly forward, placing his elbows on his knees, looking him up and down, smiled, and then sank carelessly back into the chair. It is good to meet you at long last, Jameek, the man said. Words of your prowess precede you. Jameek was still taking in the room, looking for clues, gathering whatever information he could. It was a habit. Thank you, he replied with the briefest of nods and said nothing else. The man's eyes appeared amused for a moment before he went on. I am sure you have heard of Dekra Mithali's death. Of course he had. She was the dockhand who oversaw the Southern Gate Market, one of the harbor masters in her circle. He nodded, but didn't speak. The man seemed intrigued by his silence. Do you think you might be the person with the necessary skills to take such a job? Jameek nodded in the affirmative. The man gave a half-hearted frown. Would you care to make a case for yourself? Taking one last look around the room, Jameek addressed the man at last. If I didn't possess the skills and abilities required, then I wouldn't have been summoned. But I assume you are looking for something more than that. I guess I could tell you I know we are in the Garden District, not the North Gate District, where these two, who led me halfway around the city with my head in a bag, and presumably you would like me to think that we are. Several of the double-backs they used would lead many to think that. But whereas the Nindarin bloom heavily in the Northgate district, there is also a small plot of the same in the Garden district. 
The empty weed, however, is only left to grow under the scarwood trees. That weed has a particular bitter smell and grows in but one place, near the outer wall of the garden district. The man's face remained unchanged, but his eyes twinkled. Beyond that, I am loyal to the guild, as you well know, and want but one thing, to learn from the harbor master, the premier thief in all the Barata province. A few more beats passed, and then the man threw back his head and laughed. Standing, he held out his left hand. And come forward, Jamik. Kiss my hand and swear your fealty to me, and the southern gate market is yours. Jamik held the man's gaze but a moment before looking over to the three people at the table. They had stopped their game and were staring at him. He looked each of them in the eyes and then turned again to the woman playing with the child. She paid him no mind, focusing instead on the tower of blocks the young girl was carefully stacking between them. He took three steps forward and kneeled before her. I, Jamik, pledge my life and loyalty to you, the harbor master, and in exchange for your protection and generosity, swear to obey you and the guild in all things. There was a silence in the room for a time, and then the woman stood. Old as she appeared to be, streaks of gray cascading through lustrous black hair, she stood with a fluid grace that betrayed her dexterity. She was thin and tall, near six feet. Her face showed many fine wrinkles, and there were three small scars beneath each eye, piercing brown eyes that held the depth of a thousand stories and a secret, some horrible secret. She reached out her right hand, her only hand, and said, I hereby accept this pledge and offer you my protection in return. Arise, Jamik. Welcome to the inner circle. Fourth day of Satar in the 2150th year after landing, two weeks after the destruction of the Emerald Scarab. The many torches, barrel fires, and braziers cast their light amidst the hovel of tents and ramshackle buildings below. The whole jumble that was the Mummer's Fair seemed to flicker and dance in the shadow. Though it was not rare for him to stand at the windows and look out over his domain, it was rare that he did so at this hour. It must be six bells after soul set. Even more of a rarity, the reason he was awake. He had had a terrible dream of fiery demons eating his hands and feet as they pulled him down into the depths of a dark pit, one that seemed to have no end. Sleep had always been just another bodily function for him. 
He had no qualms with how he lived, the things he had done. Sleep was just an extended closing of the eyes, a passing of time, and then awake again. It had been that way since he was a child. So what was this weird vision that had come to him? He scowled. Little to nothing, he suspected. The Baron put little value on faith or symbology. The world was but a series of random events. Power was taken by the strong and clever and suffered by the weak and lazy. His stomach growled. Where in the hells was Zaltan? He had sent him to the kitchen nearly a half-bell ago. Who cared that it was the middle of the night? He paid well, and he expected prompt service. Footsteps came from behind. Only for the briefest of moments did he think they were Zaltan, before identifying they were too soft, that the gate was wrong. In fact, the gate didn't match any of his current household. Someone was going to die tonight. The Baron turned calmly from the window, two sharp poignard daggers dropping from his sleeves. Little surprised him. He made a practice of not being surprised, and yet what stood before him did surprise him. A gnome, bald of head, a long blonde beard streaked with white, neatly braided, stood near the edge of Cerise's light and the shadow that lay beyond. How in the knoll-bitten bones had this one entered his estate? The gnome's expression was flat, but the baron could see he was doing his best to mask fear in his eyes. The little intruder must know who he was. May I help you? He inquired. The gnome squinted as he took a step forward, but did not speak. There was something about him, something familiar. You've broken into my house just to gaze upon me in my sleeping clothes. You have nothing to say, no threats on my life, no demands of justice for my harming someone you have known. He continued, taking a step toward the gnome, showing he was not afraid. The gnome bared his teeth in a feral grin, a coyote with its hackles up. But the gnome took a half-step back. He was terrified. It had to be someone he had. He couldn't speak. I recognize you. You're that mouthy little gnome I captured. What, it had to be well over fifteen years ago. The Baron took another step forward. I had your tongue cut out, didn't I? He was growing amused. What pathetic confrontation was this? What self-inflicted suicide? Or so the gnome might wish. He would not kill him. He would make him suffer for a long, long time. 
none had ever escaped the baron's manner, and when this one was put back in the cells below, that statement would ring true again. Sergio, Sego, something like that. That was your name, yes. The gnome made no response, but held up a piece of parchment. My name is Snare, was written on it. Snare? He laughed. No. Sebo, that was your name. Did you think leaving your name under my house would set you free? Too bad you can't speak, little one, or I would ask if you have any last words before I send you back to look for your name. The gnome actually snarled like an angry dog as he stepped closer. A sorry, mangy little dog. You have provided me with some entertainment on an otherwise strange night. But now I think this ends. He called for his guards the ones who watched in the hidden chambers beside the hall. Sultan, Kabril, Grek. He had taken another step forward before he realized there was no response. Sultan, Kabril, Grek. Nothing. His face turned red. He hated looking foolish. Grasping the daggers, he raised the points. He would skewer this little pest himself, and then he would skewer his guards. There were but four paces between them now. He was about to make his move, to close the distance before the shadow behind the gnome shifted and changed. A young halfling with hair the color of flame stepped from the shadow, a disappointed look on her face. And you would be, the baron asked in an irritated tone. In response, a second shadow moved, and then a third. Now beside the gnome and the halfling stood a young human girl with a pile of brown braids atop her head and a stern dwarf with a brown-forked beard and a frown. What cinder-cooked hallucination was this? Keeping his calm, he began to shift position in the room, to back toward his chair, if he could just make it to the chair. As he backed away, they came on. A sword flashed into the young human girl's hand before it burst into blue flame. And then she spoke. I am the voice of Snare. She spoke out loud, and yet her voice also sounded in his mind. These, she nodded to the other, are his will and his bidding. Three more steps. If he could just retreat three more steps. And he has come. We have come to tell you your time of power has come to an end. He was nearly there. He began to spin, but before he had moved but halfway to his goal, another shadow burst forth, and an unbelievably strong hand grasped his throat, pushing him back into his chair. Instinctively, his dagger shot out, seeking the soft spot just below the breastbone. 
a flash of pain as his wrist was grabbed by the other free hand of the woman. For it was a woman, a massive half-orc woman. One good eye, red with rage, stared back at him, shaved head, spittle dripping from tusks. She tightened her grip, crushing his wrist, and he dropped the dagger. In a lightning-quick motion, she caught it mid-air and stabbed it through his hand, pinning it to the arm of the chair. Before he had time to consider that, she had taken his second dagger from him, driving it through his remaining hand, sticking it to the chair as well. He screamed in agony. The room should be filling with his people. He had no less than fifteen on duty at any one time. Where were they? The young human woman spoke on. Stop screaming, Baron. I need you to listen. Your time is done. His head thrashed about as he yelled at the top of his lungs. No one is coming for you. The incessant voice kept calmly on in his head. He started to scream again when the half-orc woman's hand shot out a second time, grasping his throat and squeezed. He felt his eyeballs swell, an awful noise gurgling in his throat. And then the hand moved in a flash from his neck to his mouth, yanking his tongue out beyond his teeth. The maniac before him had drawn an axe in the same breath, setting the edge against the left side of his tongue. He tasted blood. You want me to cut it out? The half-orc snarled. He made noise no longer, frozen in terror. His eyes went past the immediate threat to the gnome who came on a few steps, staring into his eyes. There was fear in those eyes no longer. There was something worse. Pity. The gnome gave the briefest shake of his head. The half-orc snarled. Too bad. It would have made such a tasty snack. She released his tongue and slapped him. Quiet now and listen so you can hear every word that comes next clearly. As much as I would like for you to misunderstand the instructions so that I can haunt your dreams for all your remaining days. The eerie voice came again. Your power ends today. She started. You have hurt your last being, brokered your last deal, influenced your last decision. You are to leave the mummer's fair tonight. We will escort you to the edge of the fair. Where you go from there is your choice. What you do from there is not. If any of us here you have harmed even so much as a pig without its consent, we will find you and you will be given to the woman who stands before you. The one-eyed woman licked the blade of her axe and leaned forward so that there was less than an inch between their faces and breathed heavily upon him. There was a madness in that eye, not a threat, but a promise of violence. The voice continued. You will not go to some other city, some other woods, and begin anew. 
You will not try to rebuild what you have here, or we will find you, and you will be given to the woman who stands before you now. The half-orc set the blade of the axe against his face and began to roughly scrape away part of the beard on the right side, clumps of bloody hair falling into his lap. Find a profession. Farrier, baker, dancer, seamstress. We care not, as long as it involves no harm to others. The axe was taken from his face. Now, you being a smart man, a powerful man, must be asking yourself, how can these measly five before me find me? How can they possibly know? How can they ensure that I heed the words that they have said? And this is my answer. The young human woman's body set alight with flame, but not normal flame, flames of dark shadow. The halfling girl walked forward, her eyes going from blue to pure black, wisps of shadow leaking from the sides. The dwarf chanted, and vines burst from the wood floor, crawling up his legs, wrapping around his waist, ascending his chest, the tips probing into his mouth, pulling it open. The halfling, now but a pace away, nodded to the half-orc. In one excruciating moment, she reached in and plucked a tooth from his mouth with her bare hands, holding it before his eyes for him to see, before passing it off to the halfling. The red-haired one took it and smiled as well before putting it into a pouch on her belt. She came alongside his chair and leaned in to whisper into his ear. I can always find you now. Always watch you. Always. The young human, still wrapped in dark flame, spoke one final time. And so you can see, we are no ordinary people. We are barely people at all. We are demons. And if you cross us, if you even think of violating the terms of your release, we will find you. We will eat your hands and feet. These are not just words, no idle threat. They are our oath, our promise. There is nowhere you can go that is beyond our reach. Do you understand? The vines withered and cracked. The half-orc leaned over and hissed. She asked if you understand. Pinned to the chair like some hapless insect, mouth and face bleeding, eyes wide with fear, he nodded. He dare not speak. The tall woman's axe fell and all went dark. They had roused him about a quarter mile outside the farthest tent. They gave him a skin full of water and three days' rations and watched him run until his form could not be seen moving through the dark woods any longer. Then they returned to the edge of the fair to watch the manor burn. The fire was raging now, 
and five gouts of flame bellowed from what had once been five windows. Windows the Baron used to look out over the fair. An explosive crack sounded as part of the roof caved in. That was fun, Ketri said as the confused population of the Mummer's Fair scrambled here and there, or watched in turn. Snare turned to Mela with a look of concern on his face. Mela listened for a moment and then squeezed Rianok's hand, to which she clung. Snare wants to know why we aren't worried the rest of the forest will catch fire. Without turning from the blaze, Rianok responded. I'll put the whole thing out with the rainstorm. And then, after a moment, I'll just let it go five more minutes. Another part of the roof collapsed, sending a ball of flame, sparks, and smoke up above the treetops. Ten tops? Snare looked at the faces of the four beside him. Even at this distance, the orange light of flame could be seen reflected in their eyes. He sent one last thought to Mela, which she repeated out loud. Snare says our debt to him has been paid. <laughs>